Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. It's great to be here with you and uh, to share some thoughts uh, tonight, particularly around a, um, a really fascinating uh, topic, the topic uh, of, of atheism. And uh, what I want to do tonight is, is um, talk a little bit about what atheism is and what it isn't. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about some history, about how the, the Western world's changed a little bit over time. Um, and uh, I then want to talk a little bit about why uh, I actually believe atheism, um, evidence doesn't point towards atheism being a, um, a, a comprehensible and, and rational way of understanding the origin of the universe. And I want to talk about why I think Christianity provides a much more evidence-based uh, reason for that. And we'll talk about a few of those things and then I'll have some encouragements for you um, at the end uh, as well. Let me start off by reading you a short scripture from uh, 1 Peter th- chapter 3, verse 1. This is a uh, verse uh, within a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote, and he's writing to uh, his listeners, encouraging in the faith, and saying to them, In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. It's a beautiful um, little verse there, and there's actually a whole lot in it. Tonight's not the night to unpack everything that's in there, but I want you to hear something that's obvious straight away. And that is that Peter is presuming that the Christians are in surrounded uh, and encountering people that don't yet believe in God. Christianity um, was birthed into the Greco-Roman world, and they had a pantheon of gods, um, lots of different gods. Uh, The Jewish people uh, in the midst of that culture as well, in their own land, obviously believed in Yahweh. But Jesus comes along and a movement is birthed that seeks to be a missionary people. And that means that they are right from the onset, outset, seeking to talk to people uh, and convince people. And it says here, uh, have a reason in your heart. Be prepared to have an answer for the reason, for the hope that you have. And what that basically is saying is that Christianity is not just a reasonable faith, but that we want to have some thinking, those of us that are Christians, for a reason for the hope that we have, an answer, or the actual word there in the Greek is apologia, what we call apologetics. That is having an answer for all sorts of questions. And we live in a world with people who have questions, and we live in a world, of course, with people who don't believe and don't particularly want to ask about it. And that's a whole other thing altogether. But it's interesting to think about why people arrive at that particular position. If there is a God, why is there even atheism at all? Years and years ago, about 20 years ago, I was working in Melbourne um, at Optus. It was while I was studying theology and, um, uh, and I got a job in a call centre. 
uh, and people would call in with their problems, you know, how it goes, one of those annoying people that you get to after you've <laughs> waited for a long time. <laughs> and we would, we would uh, I got on really, really well. We would have our headsets on and be answering people's problems, but we'd be having lots of fun and throwing balls around the office and just getting on really well with the co-workers. And um, after work, we would go to the pub or somewhere like that and have dinner and have a few drinks. And I got to know this sort of team I was part of a whole lot. And we started to share about our life. And they all knew that I was studying uh, theology in order to become a minister. And they found that really curious and interesting. And um, so one night we're at the pub and we're all sitting around uh, a big table, about 12 of us. And we ended up going around the room and everyone said what they believed. And it's fascinating. I, I was the only kind of out-and-out Christian. I was certainly the only one there studying to be a minister. There was someone else who'd kind of grown up in the church but wasn't really going anymore, but didn't have anything against it. It just kind of wasn't happening for them at the moment. But there are only two people out of everyone else who called themselves atheists. As we went around the room, people tried to describe what they believed. And they would say things like, it's not... I'm not a Christian and I don't believe in, you know, a guy with a beard on a throne somewhere, but I also don't want to say that there's nothing. They're kind of in this in-between stage where they would talk about there being a, a, the fact that we're all connected somehow in the world or there is a force of love in the universe or they're open to spirituality. And it was a really, really fascinating conversation. The fascinating part that I find for this particular topic tonight is that out of 12 people, only two of them were willing to say, I'm an atheist. And that actually lines up um, pretty significantly with the stats around uh, Australian culture. That while belief in God, and particularly belief in being a Christian, in Australia at least, has sort of gone down uh, over previous decades, um, atheism has only gone up incrementally. People find it really hard to come out and say there's no God, even while they might find it equally hard yet to say there is a God and I need to bow before that God and give my life to that God in the way that, that Dan has done tonight. And the reason I think that there are so many people who find themselves in the middle is because atheism itself is a pretty profound act of faith. To actually come out and say that you don't believe there is a God is in itself an assertion that re requires as much kind of evidence and reasoning and faith as coming out and saying that there is a God. Let me define a few terms here so we get this kind of nice and, and clear. Atheism is we kind of define as, a, as an absence or belief in the existence of deities. A person who says, I believe there is no God. A, th a theist, a theist is a person who believes that there is a God. And so Christianity is theism. It's actually monotheism, one God we believe in. Um, and and Christianity is obviously one, one um, system of belief kind of within that. But of course, Islam is another one, and we've talked about that in different weeks. They believe in one God, but of course, quite differently to Christianity. But atheism is a statement that says there is no God. There's also a category of people called agnostic. And a lot of people use the term agnostic. I'm kind of agnostic. What that basically means is 
not just that I don't know, but agnosticism says we can't know. It's impossible to know. Nothing can really be known or known about deities at all. And so a lot of people live in that in-between world and they might say, well, I'm not a theist, I don't believe in God, but I'm not an atheist, I'm not willing to say that there is no God, and they might say I'm agnostic, but actually they're not really probably agnostic, strictly speaking, because agnostic was really saying, and we can't know. Whereas a lot of the people that I think live in this middle space actually, I think, have a hint that maybe they can know, or at least their life and their behaviour indicates that you can know something. In other words, they have opinions about it. They have opinions about whether the church is doing a good job or not. They have opinions about dreams and spiritual experiences. They, have, they read horoscopes or are open to spiritual experiences. There's a whole lot of things that happen in our world that indicate that people, far from saying, we can't know anything, just get on with your shopping, actually <laughs> believe that you can search and find something. That as humans, we were somehow made to desire or made with a desire for something and we seek to quest for it. So I want to talk a little bit about why I think Christianity then is a pretty good and defensible place to end up if you're unwilling to live forever in that in-between kind of space. The last thing I guess I want to say as well is that Christianity is not at all a defensive faith. What I mean by that, because as I said before, it's always assumed that they're surrounded by many people who don't believe or are unsure if they believe, Christianity is not at all threatened by the idea that people don't believe. Christianity is not at war with people who don't believe. It's not seeking to dominate the culture. It's not seeking to dominate people's lives. Listen to the words that Peter says here. Be prepared to give an answer. Not an argument. You might have some rational reasons in it. But an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. But then he says, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. And what I hear there from Peter is someone who's not defensive. I hear someone who is, who's calm and who's confident. In fact, whose identity isn't met by whether people all agree with what I believe or not. But actually, their identity is found in being convinced that there is a God who loves. And in fact, the whole model that Jesus gives us for this is his sacrificial love. Christianity is founded on a God who died for his enemies, a Jesus who gave himself in sacrificial love. And so the biblical faith isn't seeking to be defensive. It's not about trying to uh, be scared of other arguments or to be adverse with, um, in adversity with atheists at all. It actually seeks to quite confidently and calmly proclaim good news about Jesus Christ. And what this means, though, is there are a whole lot of people, and particularly, I think, in the culture and the media at the moment, though, who are actually quite aggressive towards Christianity. 
In fact, while atheism itself, or the idea that there may not be a God, is a, has been an idea that's been around in philosophical circles for quite literally thousands of years, but more in a contemporary terms, the last few hundred years, there's been a crop in more recent years of what we call new atheists. And these are people you may have heard like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, um, who have come out and written books and engaged in debates, asserting not just that hey, there is no God or that we can't know that there's no God. They are actually, in some ways, anti-theists. That is, they say that the idea that there is a God is a terrible idea. They are in direct opposition to belief in God. They believe that religion poisons everything and the idea that there is a God is a corrupting idea. They're deeply intolerant, actually, openly, about Christianity. And it comes, sometimes Christians can take the bait on that stuff, you know what I mean, and come back hard. But there's no need to do that. I don't see Jesus calling us to do that, to stand your ground and to have an argument, a good, a good reason, a good answer and so forth, absolutely. But not one that needs to be defensive. But why do many people end up with such an anti-theistic view? You might have friends who at work or at college or around the place, and a few of them are sort of similar to the friends that I had at work around this table when everyone said, they just don't really know, but they're kind of curious and interesting. And there might be a couple of people who are absolutely atheists, and then there might be one or two who are like, um, they're like militant atheists, you know? <laughs> why? Why are there atheists and why are there people who are so angry? Well, for a couple of reasons, I reckon. And Christians are one reason. That is, we're sinful. That is, we don't act like our Christ. We don't act, we haven't acted like. The church as an institution has failed profoundly through history at moments. And as individuals, as Christians, I know I've failed. And so if anyone is going to get a picture of God by looking at me or Carl, especially Carl, then <laughs> they're going to get a flawed picture. But what Carl would want them to do and what I would want them to do is to say, yeah, you know what, I don't want you to look at, I'm not the total evidence of Christ. Look at Christ. But then I may also suggest, look at me then and look at me now and see what Christ is doing. I'm flawed, and I continue to be saved by grace and flawed. But a lot of people have an atheistic stance, not because they've necessarily sat down and weighed the evidence, but simply because they're just horrified at what Christians have done or the way in which they've portrayed hypocrisy. A lot of the time also... It, can be because they have a really distorted view of God. I've sat in conversations with people who say, I don't believe in God. And I'll say, well, describe this God that you don't believe in. And they'll describe and I'll go, yeah, well, I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. They just don't know. Yeah. And this goes to the argument that's been put out again and again, that Christianity hasn't been, hasn't been tried and found wanting. It's been tried and maybe found difficult and then like abandoned. <laughs> You know what I mean? People, you, you've got to sit and think. Just like we heard Francis Collins, the famous um, 
a world famous um, scientist uh, on the screen before in the alpha ad, he says, I'm supposed to be a scientist and I'd actually never looked at the evidence. I just sort of assumed there was no God. And then he looks at the evidence and he becomes a Christian and he ends up promoting alpha. So sometimes we just never, never really thought it through. And that's a time when we can play a role by bearing witness. But I think also a lot of people end up in a questioning phase or thinking that maybe there isn't a God because of their own personal experiences of life and suffering. And that's fair enough. Because I think pain is the common experience of humanity. And I tell you what, people go through tough stuff. When you've been treated a particular way in your life or things have happened that have been bombs that have exploded in your life. It's in those moments that it can be hard to think that there is a good and loving God somewhere looking over it. Now, I don't know if it's helpful or not to know this. We haven't got time to unpack all that sort of stuff. I've written in this area, but this question around suffering and the goodness of God and God's power in those sovereignty in those things is probably some of the oldest theological matters that have been considered. And Christianity is engaged with them and engaged deeply with them philosophically and theologically for a long time, for the 2,000 years. And there's plenty of stuff around that if you want to take that further. But it is, at least at this point, a reason why people just don't believe or find it hard to see the reasons why there is a God there to consider and to believe in. But what about our culture as a whole? In other words, why does it feel like when we look back about 500 years that in a crowd of 100 people, there might have been a few people who didn't believe in God? Everyone was default a God believer. In some parts of the Western world, they would define themselves as a Christian. And then why is it that 500 years later, you can get a group of 100 people and there would just be a small group of people who say they do believe and a few that absolutely don't and a lot in the middle? In other words, why has the whole culture shifted, it seems, towards atheism? And that's a really fascinating question. And it goes to the way in which Western civilization has changed and shifted over that time. Let me just explain this, and I'll explain this briefly because it is a very um, involved and deep and interesting topic. If we go back about 500 years, we're in an era that we could kind of define as pre-modernism. And this is a time in the Western world where essentially everyone believed in God, generally speaking. In fact, they kind of had a, a picture in their mind of life in the universe as being like a two-storey house. Here's us in the bottom story, and there's another story, and that's where God lives. And that's the default kind of worldview picture of the way in which people lived through uh, certainly the Middle Ages and through up to about that 1,000-year period, up to about 500 years ago. Everyone believed in the supernatural. And in fact, they even believed that all of nature kind of pointed to the idea that there is a transcendent kind of reality that's providing uh, the world for us and nurturing the world, a sense of provenance. And so most people, in fact, almost everyone in society just assumed that there is an overarching purpose and meaning to the whole universe. 
And people saw themselves as deeply woven into that and to every member of their community. But around about, which was sort of three to 400 years ago, we started moving into a different era. Out of the pre-modern era in through a period called the Enlightenment and into an era that's now called the modern era. And this is a time when significant thinkers began to question whether the traditional authorities in society, like the church uh, and tradition uh, and even community itself and Holy Scripture, could really be trusted. And again, the church at that time, the Holy Catholic Church, the Roman Church, was engaged in some stuff that we look back on and go, that's rubbish. In fact, the Catholic Church itself looks back on and says, was deeply flawed. But people questioned that. And so philosophers in the West began to look for truth, not in those things or what was around them and assumed. They started to think through the idea that we needed to ascertain what was true from the ground up. In other words, we wanted to assume nothing and only believe what is true, the things that we have direct verifiable evidence for. That is, to believe something was true, you have to start from the ground up. And then they decided this begins with the self. In other words, the only thing I really know is me and what I know. And so René Descartes, you may have heard his famous saying, I think, therefore I am. And this was kind of a moment when philosophical thought in the whole Western world kind of started to shift and people started seeing not God as the centre of the universe, but the human being, man in particular, is the centre of the universe and man's thoughts about what is. And so individual brain reason became kind of the bedrock foundation of knowledge. We only know things to be true if we follow concrete steps that can be absolutely verified. Now, this led to, just cutting things short, to a massive explosion in scientific discovery. So this is largely, in many ways, a good thing. But it also kind of reduced the nature, our understanding of nature and reality down to kind of mechanistic material things. In other words, it started to feel a bit dry. It's like if scientists were running the world. You're going to let a lot of wonderful science done, but you're not going to get a lot of great songs. <laughs> you know what I mean? What about the movies? What about the painting? What about... And so there's this whole kind of era that started to kick against this and say, you know what? Life is becoming a bit mechanical. And this was called the Romantic period, where suddenly all these poets started writing poetry again. And even that I find really, really interesting. That as people started to put human rational reason at the very centre of life, philosophers started to realise that's not enough. There's more to being human than just simply verifiable evidence. And so all these poets and painters start kicking up about it and an enormous amount of culture came from that. But ultimately, other philosophers came along and started to argue that a mechanistic world is an insufficient way to understand humanity. We're not computers or machines. We're desiring beings. We have desires and longings 
and a need for a sense of meaning and purpose that goes beyond simply explaining a concrete, mechanistic, material world. The other thing that happened through the modern period is uh, there was a lot of a lot of the philosophers were saying if we can get rid of religion and we can just see the world as being scientific and verifiable and based on reason, then finally we will get rid of all those religious wars. And so we'll have a deeply ordered, peaceful world. The problem was it didn't happen. (laughs) The problem was that actually this scientific reason led to splitting the atom and bigger and bigger artillery and tanks and bombs. And so as we moved into the 20th century, we realised that science not only gave us the cure to certain diseases, it gave us the ability to kill people in the thousands. And so this strange phenomena happened where through the 20th century, we've moved into a different era where we've looked back on modernism and we've said, it's not enough. There's more to being human than just science and mechanics and reason. There's more to the soul and to the spirit and our longing, to our behaviour than that. But also, the great movements of secularism have kind of failed to bring this ordered world. And some of the great political movements that have relied on deep anti-religion belief, like communism, ended up perpetrating atrocities, killing millions of people, through Russia and later, and I'll refer to China a bit later on. Having no God didn't help society become any more peaceful. In fact, you could argue that it made it worse. And so we live in a world now, though, where the default setting of the broader culture is not a belief in God. But we do have this memory of values and morals that are based on all that Christianity gave us. And so many Australians, you know, they might say, yeah, I'm not really a Christian, but they're very kind of comfortable with a set of values that's quietly informed by Christianity. The sense of justice and law courts, the idea of the charity service. There's a reason why 20 of the top 26 welfare agencies in Australia are faith-based. Christians do stuff for the poor and people say, yeah, that's awesome. That's great. Thank God for the salvos. So there's this kind of appreciation for all that Christianity has given to the Western world, but then there's a forgetfulness of the belief that that's based on. And it's a really strange in-between time in our culture and our society as a whole where there are, there are these, these sort of forgotten memories of the inheritance that Christianity has given us, but there's a real distrust in authorities, and particularly authorities that try and dictate religion to us, and there's no kind of overarching accepted universal truth. There's a famous saying that says, when people choose not to believe in God, they don't believe in nothing, They just become capable of believing in anything. And so we have a culture where people kind of believe in anything. And where the overriding belief that everyone holds is that it's okay for you to believe whatever you want to believe. And you kind of, people end up following their own kind of spiritual paths, looking for what 
their desires lead them to and what makes them happy for a while. And a lot of it is seriously unquestioned, ultimately, about what moral basis built on and what evidence is there for it. We just have a lot of little truths going around and a lot of people living in what um, one philosopher, Charles Taylor, calls the imminent frame. Imminent frame means, you remember before I said that in the pre-modern world, people kind of lived in a two-storey view of the world where we live here and there's an upstairs with God? Well, no longer. Now they just live in a one-storey. This is kind of all there is. And there's no overarching shared purpose and meaning to the universe So it's up to individual people to create meaning for themselves. And people who are looking around and trying to find meaning are prime targets for advertising and marketing. (laughs) And so in some ways, we are actually a far more um, susceptible people to be swayed by the market and by shopping and by consumerism and all sorts of things that come to dominate our whole life unless we have an upstairs to our house, unless we have an overarching purpose and reason. We are desiring beings who are not quite sure what we're desiring. The Apostle Paul writes about it in Acts chapter 17, where he talks about that we are people who are feeling around in the darkness. And he says, some people feel around and then they find God because he is not very far away from us. And so in the midst of that, there are people who feel more and more certain in atheism and there are some people who feel more and more certain in their theism, in their belief in God, but there's a lot of people in the middle who are just feeling around and aren't really sure. Tom York from the band Radiohead, a band that I really love, he says, you know, most people don't ask what's right and what's wrong. They don't ask what's true and what's not. They just gaze at the television. (laughs) And we live in a culture that just loves to gaze at the television. But I actually think when you stop and start considering the nature of truth and where truth comes from, then it actually starts to point more and more strongly and convincingly towards there being a loving, sovereign creator. We're thankful as a Christian faith, and we should be thankful for science, Um, which is an evidence-based exploration of the created world, of the natural world. And certainly even going back through history, the evidence was really strong that Christianity was an antidote to all the magic and superstition of the Greco-Roman Empire. And it kind of cleared the way, John Dixon says this at one point, cleared the way for science to, um, to thrive. And so Christianity is actually the best ally of science and scientific discovery. But science can't, on its own, answer everything. It can't give us the whole answer to the nature of truth. It can't do, for instance, it can't tell us convincingly that other minds exist and that our memories actually happened. It can't account for beauty and why we find things compellingly beautiful. It can't determine absolute ethical statements. Science doesn't tell us what's morally right and wrong. And therefore, it can't ultimately provide for justice or for human rights or for defining good and evil. 
These are moral questions. These are questions that are metaphysical and deep, and they go to the questions of meaning. And every single person ultimately wants an answer to those questions, I reckon. Because the experience of every person includes, firstly, consciousness. We all, excuse me, I shouldn't have chosen the fizzy water. We all have consciousness. The fact that we know that we exist and we know who we are and where we are. The fact that we have a mind points ultimately in one sense to the idea of there being a rational mind, or at least it says uh, people of rational thought who live and breathe and operate in a highly complex universe that just works points to the idea that there is a rational God, a creator behind it. It can't be irrational to hold that a rational mind lies behind the evident rationality of the universe and of our minds. It points to the fact that there is ultimately maybe a first cause to the universe. Have you ever thought about why there is something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? The whole universe, the more we learn about it, points to a beginning to the universe. It also points to the idea of there being an intelligent designer to the way things are against all probability. It also points to the appreciation of beauty. This is Tom Wright, um, a, a wonderful um, New Testament scholar, talks beautifully about this in his book, Simply Christian, where he talks about the nature of why we find things beautiful and how they kind of always point beyond themselves to other ultimate things. When we find something beautiful, we want it and we want more of it. What's the purpose behind beauty? Why do we find things beauty beautiful? Do we all have a quest for meaning and for justice? And justice in particular, I think, is a point that we can argue points to the existence of God. Because in a world with no God, it's hard to argue for an absolute moral right and wrong. How can you ultimately and absolutely say something is right or wrong morally without a standard above and beyond us all to give us that? I'll quote for you here from the great man C.S. Lewis because he argues this point eloquently and beautifully. C.S. Lewis um, was a scholar at Oxford University, very famous. You would know him from The Lion, The Witch in the Wardrobe and other books. He was an atheist until something changed his mind. He was wondering how a God could exist because the world seemed to have so many problems and there seems to be injustice around about him. And he wrote this. He said, if a good God made the world, why has it all gone wrong? For many years, I simply refused to listen to the Christian answer to this question because I kept on feeling, whatever you say and however clever your arguments are, isn't it much simpler and easier just to say that the world was not made by an intelligent power? Aren't all your arguments simply a complicated attempt to avoid the obvious? But then that threw me back into another massive, major difficulty. My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But where did I get this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. 
What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole world was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such a violent reaction against it? Of course, I could have given up on my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own, but if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed as well. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not just simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be just too simple. If the whole world has universe has no meaning, we would never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as like if there was no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we never would have known it was dark. Dark would have been without meaning. If you want to follow his line of logic, you can read his book, Mere Christianity. And he talks about there, about Christianity. It's one of the most greatest works of the 20th century. But eventually he reached a point where he said, I had to admit that God was God. And he says, late at night, one night in my office, I slumped to my knees and gave my life to God. He says, the most reluctant convert in all of England. <laughs> Atheism was just too simple. Well, I could go on and on about those kinds of things, but the last thing I really want to say tonight is, how do you engage with people in talking about um, atheism and belief in God, particularly with those who say they really don't believe? I think, first of all, you want to think about the difference between not believing on grounds of evidence and not believing because of other reasons. It's perfectly valid. Like I said, Christ didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. So to declare and say, this is a defensible place, that a God would come and die for his people. But some people have a frame of reference a take that is very rigid, a too overconfident picture that can't even imagine a different world. So you kind of got to get inside that worldview a bit. And you can start by talking about the things that we have in common, that you can affirm together, believers and non-believers, such as the fight for human rights or the emphasis on appreciating diversity. We have a God who... Um, created a multicultural world, or the virtue of serving the oppressed and the marginalised in society. But then you might have moved beyond that and start talking about atheism itself and how you seem to find it, and you have to do a bit of reading and thinking about this, inconsistent and unlivable, ultimately. You can also talk about where atheism kind of borrows from the Christian story, such in the area of justice, and then you can talk about how Christianity better comes to address the experiences of life, observing the way we actually live and what we desire. One of my favourite novelists is David Foster Wallace, and he wasn't a believer before he tragically died early, but he wrote in 2005 this. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the question you can ask is, why? Why do we all worship? 
Why do people who don't even believe in a God worship something? What's going on inside of us that this worshipping instinct and capacity remains within us? Let me end with something very briefly. And that is at the end of the day, I want to encourage you to look to Jesus and point to Jesus. Jesus is the best evidence for the existence of God. The historical man Jesus and the sheer glorious, beautiful idea like lightning from a clear sky that God came into this world that he created as a man and chose to die for this world because of his love for it. The sheer act of grace is unlike any other worldview not just any other religion, but is phenomenally, incomparably beautiful and thrilling compared to secular Western atheism, which ends up living by the default of every man and woman for themselves or a creation of meaning on your own terms, lacking absolute value. Albert Einstein, the ultimate scientist, who wasn't a Christian, said this at one point. He says, I am enthralled by this luminous figure of Jesus. And the journalist said to him, you accept the historical existence of Jesus? And Einstein said, no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. At the end of the day, you can't argue someone or even answer someone out of atheism. <laughs> That's the Holy Spirit's job. And the Holy Spirit will do the Spirit's best work when someone's looking at Jesus, reading about Jesus and hearing about Jesus. It's then that faith is evoked. There is a step of faith. This is something that is God's work and it's our privilege to simply, as I said before, have an answer, a reason for the hope that we have. Don't be silent at that point. Share it and share it openly, particularly the way it plays out in your life. And Dan gave us a beautiful illustration of that. It's hard to argue with that. I hear that and I go, wow, what Jesus can do and how the Holy Spirit will minister. One last quick point. This is what brings out our hope. There is a certain perspective that says the inevitability of society is towards greater secularism. That's true for certain periods of the Western world, but it's not the whole story. Christianity is growing around the world, and that's a fascinating thing to observe. In fact, even in the Western world, people, sociologists are flabbergasted by the persistence of Christianity, even its growth in major cities such as London and um, in New York, really fascinatingly at the moment. But one story in particular just seems to defy explanation, and it's about China. I said before that one of the great movements of atheism in the world uh, was the communist political um, movement. And communism, uh, Marxism, um, has had a... Um, well, it's, it's been an utter failure, but it has caused an enormous amount of destruction throughout the world. But in China in particular, 
It's a fascinating uh, story to consider. This is my last point. In 1949, um, there were two million Christians in China. Missionaries had come in from uh, the West and, and come in and, and um, shared the gospel over different periods of history, and there were about two million people. Um, when Chairman Mao took, uh, took over in China and there was the communist revolution, um, he initiated... Um, basically a purging of religion from the entire society and from the country. He was determined that there would be no religion in China. He banished all the foreign missionaries from China. He nationalised all the church property in China. He killed all the senior leaders of the Chinese church. And then he imprisoned the second and third level leaders of the Chinese church. He banned all public meetings of Christianities anywhere in China and perpetrated one of the largest persecutions of Christians on record. His reign ended in 1976 and when the so-called bamboo curtain was lifted in the 1980s, Western missionaries went back in to see how many Christians were left. There were two million in 1949 all the Western missionaries went home had Christianity survived in China. In a secular country, under a political dictatorship founded on atheism, how would Christianity do? Would, it, would there be a remnant? Would there be something left of the two million over so many decades? Western missionaries were shocked to discover 60 million Christians throughout China. There are now 80 million Christians in China. Why? How? What motive have they got? Two million. We're all kicked out. And Christianity exploded exponentially in the underground Chinese church. 60 million faithful Christians sharing the gospel, friends and relatives in an underground church through networks coming to Jesus. Not since the early church have we seen such a massive and comprehensive growth of the gospel under absolute oppression. Christianity is not a defensive religion. It's not worried by atheism. It's used to that kind of culture. In fact, it thrives in that kind of culture because it's founded on a saviour who was crucified in his greatest victory. It is a Christianity is a religion of love. It is a pathway of loving sacrifice, of sharing and of proclamation and of good news. It invites people to consider what this God has done for them. I finish with these lovely words from Mark chapter 9 as a man came along and spoke to Jesus and says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help my unbelief. A lot of Australians kind of live in that space. I do believe, help my unbelief. Let's be there and let's be present and let's be loving 
in order that they, we might be a vehicle through which they hear the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, what can I do for you? Let's pray. Loving and gracious God, it's a thrill to be here and to be able to worship in this place and worship openly and to proclaim your name. We give thanks, Lord Jesus, for those faithful disciples through history that in different places have been faithful to your gospel and to your message when they have been swamped and surrounded by unbelief and even oppression. Lord God, I pray that you would help us to be calm and confident in you and to love and keep loving no matter what. But Lord God, I also dare to pray tonight if there are any here who go, you know what? I kind of want to say that to Jesus. I want to believe, but help by unbelief. The Bible says if you sincerely quest after God, then He will come to you. That He stands at the door and that He knocks. And you have the opportunity now or afterwards to question, to reason, to think, and at some stage to say yes to the God who has said yes to you. May God bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.